You're listening to a Sin podcast. You can listen to this show live by tuning your radio to 90.7 or online at sin.org.au. Basically a complete shock to, to most people. <laughs> I didn't expect it either. Um, so he came out yesterday saying he was going to resign from Premier um, and from politics in general. Um, uh because he says he's, you know, just exhausted um, that, you know, being a premier, especially during COVID, um, is a responsibility that is relentless. It doesn't stop. And it's, I guess, taken its toll after, you know, how many, six or so years of being leader plus 11 years as a party leader. And then even, you know, he's been in politics since 1996. So, Fair enough that he's exhausted, but it did come as quite a surprise considering his popularity and what we've seen, um, you know, in the 2021 RWA election. Absolutely. So Freddie and I were actually just talking about this. We didn't know he'd been in politics for almost 30 years. Yeah, like, that was crazy. That's an insane yeah. tenure. Um, it almost is like Definitely, no wonder considering he's, he's only 55. Yeah, exactly. So um, for you, are there any particular events that have led to his resignation that you've noticed, or do you think it was just sort of a build-up over time? I don't notice anything massively in particular, aside from the timing in terms of, you know, he said he, as, as a treasurer as well, he's the premier and treasurer of WA, he did want to pass down the budget, so he wanted to make sure that went through. Um, but that's more about the timing of, you know, resigning rather than the thing itself. I haven't seen any warning signs. Perhaps, you know, if you look back at the news, you might. But I think it just, you know, takes its toll. Um, and perhaps, you know, it's because we've seen other leaders resign. Perhaps it's you know, more normalised or, you know, it's just uh, we've, we've reached a stage where, um, you know, he thinks that, that WA is in safe hands and therefore he, he's able to resign. Whereas during COVID, he was not because he was very much front and centre um, of of uh, the COVID response, but also, you know, in, in communicating that to, to the um, WA population. Yeah, absolutely. So um, no, I'm really glad you mentioned COVID because that um, segues really well into a question that I wanted to ask, which was, we've seen this with quite a lot of premiers, um, Daniel Andrews in particular, but also I think Anastasia Palaszczuk. Um, they were the face of the state pretty much for two or three years straight. Mm. Like they're the only people that people from another state would recognise and go, I know who that is, Uh, Mark McGowan in particular. Do you think this is going to affect the legitimacy of his successor and the popularity of whoever comes next? Perhaps. um, I mean, I don't think the next leader will be nearly as popular as uh, McGowan, but that's because it was so rare to have such a popular leader. I think he's one of the most popular premiers Australia has ever seen. I mean, he had an approval rating of 91% during sometime during the earlier periods of the pandemic. Um, and he you know, kept a pretty stable approval rating as well, um, You know, considering some of the unpopular decisions they made, the tough but fair decisions they made at the time. Um, you know, he did receive a, a lot of support for that. So, you know, people are saying that there's kind of personality cult of McGowan and it would be hard for another leader to live up to that. Um, perhaps they don't have to live up to those astronomic heights. Perhaps they could just be, you know, fairly approved by the public. That would still be a great success in comparison to, you know, the many leaders we've seen who have just who are just not liked by by the electorate. So it's it's big boost to fill, but I don't know if anyone can realistically expect to fill those either. You know, to fill it to such a to, to such an extreme. So, with the McGowan cult that you've mentioned, that's that's so cool. <laughs> so, like, um, with his successor coming in, do you think McGowan's departure could affect Labor's 
uh, lead in in WA because they have an absolutely massive lead. They had 53 Mm. of the 59 seats in the last election and especially in McGowan's seat of, I think it's Rockingham, um, he had like an 87% uh, lead over the Liberal Party. Do you think his departure is going to affect Labor as a whole in the state? I think anything would have affected Labor as a whole um, because how can you repeat that? You know, those yeah, ridiculous numbers. I mean, we rarely see that in a Westminster system. Um, it's it's an anomaly. So I think it was always going to come down from, I, you, you're always going to go down. You can't really go up from that unless you want a totalitarian state. You know, you, <laughs> do you really want 59 of the seats? Would, would that be a debate? Um, so I think they are going to lose seats, obviously. I mean, that's just pretty inevitable, even if he was um, going to be leader in 2025 for the election. It, it, it's just by how much. So I don't think they're really at risk of losing the election in 2025 unless something dire happens. Um, but, you know, currently there's not really an opposition. I mean, the Nationals are the leader of the opposition right now because I think there's only, what, three, two or three Liberal uh, politicians. Mm. Um, so it's not looking great for them, but I'm sure at the same time they're probably you know, extremely excited that McGowan's resigning because it means perhaps they can claw some seats back. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think that any successor will be able to kind of maintain the momentum that Mark McGowan set? I mean, WA is one of the, I think one of the only states that's in surplus, you know, he's just delivered a budget. Mm. Um, Is that going to be something that can be continued? I mean, he has left the state in a very good shape in, in that sense. Um, so it wouldn't be difficult uh, to, to, for the next leader to be quite popular just because of, of those numbers and those figures and what that means for the state. Um, so it would be, I guess, easier for, for the person who's going to come in and, and fill those shoes. Um, so I think it won't be, yeah, it, it would be hard for, for the next person, but it won't be as difficult as, say, taking the reins um, of a state when you know you have a budget deficit and you have, um, I guess, more political hardships than they currently do. Well, I guess speaking of the next person, do we have any clue of who that might be yet? Well, there are a few people who've um, either put their hat in the ring or are planning to, but it's kind of... Um, uh, not the most straightforward process. So essentially you have the Deputy Premier, Roger Cook, who is from the left faction of Labour in WA, and he's put his hand into the ring. Um, but at the same time, uh, the Health Minister, Amber Jade Sanderson, has also indicated her interest in, uh, you know, cha- um, for putting a, you know, putting a hat into the to the leadership ring as, as well, and uh, she's also yeah from the left um, left faction, and then you have Transport Minister Rita Saffiotti, who's apparently unaffiliated in terms of factions, um, but she's also con- contended to replace McGowan. Now the difficulty comes uh, when uh, you have more than one person essentially um, contending to replace a leader because of the whole Julie Gillard Kevin Rudd thing <laughs> earlier on, you know, last decade. Um, if you have two or more two or more candidates, then you, you have a much more prolonged process. And that's kind of not really wanted right now. They want someone to fill it quite soon because McGowan's leaving at the end of the week, uh, where if you had that more prolonged process, it could take up to five or six weeks to, to get that sorted. So I think they've got to try and figure it out themselves unless they do want to go that more prolonged route. Yeah. And so going back to the factions a little bit, do you think we should expect a new premier that has quite a similar position to McGowan or... Do you think that maybe the Labour Party in WA is going to want someone kind of completely different? 
Not sure. I mean, McGowan was uh, also kind of unaffiliated faction-wise, um, but he very much was able to bridge uh, the factions, you know, bridge that kind of inner in divide between the Labour Party, um, and he did that quite successfully. Uh, but having said that, I mean, the Labour-left faction is, is much bigger and stronger in WA, so it would make sense for a Labour-left, uh, you know, person to... to to, to uh, replace McGowan um, just because of, of, of the strength that they have. Um, unless, you know, Sakiotti, who is unaffiliated, um, manages to, I guess, win over um, the left faction. So yeah, they just have to, um, you know, get, get that support, basically. So you have been on record calling Mark McGowan the state daddy, which um, <laughs> Bridie and I both are kind of obsessed with now. Can you yeah. just explain what that means? Yeah. <laughs> so essentially during the COVID pandemic, at the start of it, you know, the big lockdown kind of era of the pandemic, um, I noticed a trend on social media, particularly amongst the youth, uh, calling McGowan and some other leaders as well, like Andrews, but mostly McGowan, um, a state daddy uh, for protecting them against COVID, um, you know, for locking down, for having those border closures and those other protective measures that essentially... I mean, if you talk about Western Australia, it kept that uh, state living, you know, 2019 normal for two years when the rest of the world was, you know, ha- you know having to face that onslaught of, of uh, COVID infections and deaths and hospitalizations. So that very much earned him, you know, not only that popularity that we saw, the kind of astronaut popularity, but also the, the nickname of Daddy or State Daddy um, from many in Western Australia. But I think you also see that elsewhere as well, as I said, with Andrews, perhaps even Albanese during the 2022 federal election campaign. So I've kind of theorised this idea based on this kind of nickname or you know position that the people have given him, uh, given given these male leaders. I kind of theorise it as this kind of caring but protective political leadership masculinity. Um, that, uh, you know, is basically embodied by a male, usually Labour leader, um, who's kind of attractive, but in a daddy way. You know, he's, he's older, but he's still attractive. Um, and, you know, is it takes care for, for, the, for his citizens and, you know, cares about um, health and education. And I guess there's more stereotypically feminine issues, if, if that makes sense. And it's an interesting trend that we've seen and very much arose um, by the people, uh, you know, rather than, say, Scott Morrison and his daggy dad persona that he kind of created himself in such a daggy fashion. Yeah, well, actually, I'm glad you brought Scott Morrison up because I'm interested, why do you think this is a particularly kind of labour phenomenon? Like, I feel like we haven't heard, um, say, Dominic Perrottet. I don't feel like people were calling him a state daddy. (laughs) No, definitely (laughs) Um, not. He's a dad of six, but not a daddy. Exactly. (laughs) Why do you think it's um, kind of a bit unique to labour? I think it's... uh, Something that I guess those on the progressive side of politics are more likely to display. Um, because in my theorizing this, this term, um, I can also apply it to, to previous, uh, you know, retrospectively to like Whitlam, for example, in the seventies, perhaps even, um, to Kirsten in the forties. Um, and as well as overseas, like Obama or Trudeau, uh, very much daddies, you know, progressive kind of, um, that caring masculinity, uh, that's more, um, I guess less aggressive and less combative, which is what you see from you know um, 
you know, male leaders on the right. They're more, you know, that kind of strong man persona, uh, like Trump or um, Bolsonaro um, or Morrison, if, if he tries, if he wishes. Um, <laughs> they very much are daggy. They don't care about women, really. They don't care about caring. They're more, um, yeah. They care more about like brute strength and aggression and defense rather than like the the health and and um, happiness of the population. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> we think that uh, you know Gough Whitlam, he could be like the free uni daddy. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely a daddy, and and it. I mean, he did very much appeal to women. And I think that's a big thing of this. Uh, and that's why you saw it in the 2022 federal election with, with Albanese, is that he did try and appeal to women, um, for women, in, in a massive contrast to Morrison, which was very much appealing to men and men's interests. And Whitlam did that with, you know, free um, university, Medicare, um, illegalizing abortion, childcare, all these massive, you know, women's rights were won during that period. Yeah. So do you think that... Um the appealing to women, is that a political conscious choice that they're making or do you think that's kind of coming about as a byproduct of their policies? Both, perhaps. Uh, I think it's a conscious choice because we've had, you know, these liberal leaders that have been so uh, overlooking women's interests mm. <laughs> and, yeah. and needs. We saw that during the COVID pandemic, you know, it was just constantly overlooking, like the, the federal budget of 2020, October 2020, horrific, right? Because it overlooked women. And when women complained, they were like, oh, there's things for women in there. You know, we've got stuff for roads. Women use roads. There you go. Yeah. And I think it's in contrast <laughs> to that, just blindsidedness. Um, so it's, yeah, it's very much done, uh, you know, purposely, but also it, goes to show that Labour, I mean, I guess it also shows how Labour, Labour does have a lot of women in its ranks as well. You know, they have around 40-ish percent, give or take, um, women in, in politics, uh, very much in contrast to, say, the Liberal Party. Yeah, yeah. Um, so with sort of the the daddy phenomenon in um, politics, uh, <laughs> do you think these sort of like memes on social media and these sort of trends, do you think they sort of make young people more engaged in politics? And what does that sort of bring in terms of benefits? I definitely think, uh, yeah, memes and TikToks and those sorts of things uh, are not only like bringing more youth into engaging in politics, but is a, is a key way that the youth do engage in politics. And so there's a lot of criticisms from older generations going, oh, you know, the young don't care about politics, they don't engage the way we do. And it's like, well, they do. It just, it just looks different, you know? It's it's more in line, it's more um, tongue-in-cheek, and it's just, you know, I guess we're, you know, millennials and Gen Z are kind of that online generation doing things differently and showing showing different ways of of how to engage politically. Um, but it, it definitely is a great way to... Um, I guess, get an interest in politics as well. Um, you know, like memes are such an easily digestible uh, and humorous uh, piece of information that can communicate uh, certain messages. And I think that is a, is a great way um, that we've seen the youth uh, do that kind of political engagement. You've seen it in you know, the last federal election um, with many memes, particularly from the Greens, I think, sh- um, being shared around young, around young people and influencing uh, young people's interests as well and perceptions of politics. Yeah, definitely. So I feel I feel like this is something that sort of emerged during the COVID period. Um, do you think that that had, like, had COVID not happened, would we still be sitting here talking about state daddies? I love how this is the subject of the interview yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Uh, 
I mean, I don't think we're going to talk about state daddies because that is, that is a term that arose specifically from those memes by young people on on um, on social media during 2020 and 2021. So without the pandemic, without having McGowan being aired into everyone's computers, screens or TVs or whatever every day in WA, I mean, you could tune into it if you're from other states as well. But without that, then I think... You know the premiers that just didn't we just didn't really care about them much like to be honest like I, I, on average you know the average person was like eh, i guess i might know their last name maybe but they didn't really know what their role was or what they did and the, the pandemic really showed um you know i guess the powers that premiers have the powers that state politics has and also showing an interest in your own um you know backyard politics rather than just looking at federal politics and i think it gave uh, you know having time off work, like time off work for a lot of people or school or whatever gave people the time to also get an interest in politics and understand you know what's currently happening so i think without that we wouldn't really have state daddy perhaps i think we'd still have um you know labor parties around the country that do care about women's issues i think that would still be a thing but i think in a, in a slightly different way yeah, definitely. So do you think that um, more memes, like more political memes, do you think that's going to mean more youth participation in politics? <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, I mean, it's interesting because, yeah, there's research being done on this. I mean, I, I haven't done that research um, specifically, but it does seem like a way that a lot of young people uh, know about politics and engage with it. I mean, just talking to my students when I teach them, uh, you know, politics uh, – and, and I mean, I do have a week on the media and we do look at memes and they all very much, uh, you know, uh, relate to that and, and see those and their friends see those. And it is something that I guess crosses the divide of those who are interested in politics and those who aren't. And it might be a way for more people to get interested in politics where they previously weren't. Perhaps it makes it more accessible, you know, if, with that kind of tongue in cheek humor that a lot of people can understand. Yeah, I'd kind of like to see, I just had this random thought, I'd love to see like a ballot paper where you tick the best meme and the politician <laughs> in that meme with the most like ticks. Wins. Beca- wins. <laughs> just wins. But um, <laughs> Blair, we'll let you go in a second, but just to wrap it all up, um, McGowan is retiring from politics entirely. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you think his next move might be? Do you think we might see him come back into politics maybe at maybe a federal level or elsewhere? What do you think? Cool. If he's exhausted now, I don't think he'll be going federally uh, for a while at least because <laughs> that would just uh, kind of kill you uh, with, with that kind of exhaustion. Mm. Um, but no, it remains to be seen what he wants to do. I mean, he says he still wants to keep working. He doesn't want to retire. I mean, he could retire if he wanted to. You know, he gets the pension um, you know, from being a politician for so long and a leader for so long. Um, but it'd be interesting to see what he does next and what his moves will be. I think he probably will take a time out for a little while to to get over his burnout, um, as many other leaders who've also resigned during COVID have done. But I think, yeah, I've got to stay tuned to see what his next moves will be. We, we were just saying before we might see State Daddy working at a fish and chip shop or something yeah. <laughs> in, in Geraldton or somewhere. <laughs> Which would be quite Perhaps they take the easy life, yeah. The, you know, the, the relaxing life of a fish and chips, although not that's the, that's the relaxing, but it's a different path to politics. You've been listening to a Sin Media podcast where young people run the show.